1: So our podcast is called Right and Wrong. So are these your notes? These. Are these your notes about what we're going to say? Um, Anything. just yeah, it. a short answer. <laughs> so how many novels did you not finish? Oh my Probably. God, so many. <laughs> 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 it was perfect. What she talking about? This is not a... Ooh, a spicy question. I love it. <laughs> this is it, guys. The big secret to getting published is you have to write a good book. <laughs> it here first. We're going say- <laughs> to Hello, and welcome back to the Right and Wrong podcast. I'm Jamie and joining me today is the queen of the contemporary Cornish novel, Liz Fenwick. Welcome to the show. Hi. Hello. How are you? (laughs) I'm very well. How are you?
0: pretty good still smiling <laughs>
1: yeah yeah coming fresh off I, I mean congratulations uh on your big win the rna's popular romantic fiction award for for your latest novel it, and it was just the other day that you um that they had the award show and everything how uh, how does it feel <sighs>
0: It still doesn't seem real. I keep looking. I've put the the actual physical award itself right in front of where I sit and write right. um, to remind me that it happened. Um, because it, huge imposter syndrome, you know, yeah. and it, that's a physical evidence. Gee, she writes books, <laughs> and they're not bad. <laughs>
1: yeah. Yeah, exactly. The Romantic Novelist Association is a fantastic group, and there's such wonderful, supportive people um, involved with it. But this award especially, um, because the nominations come from librarians and booksellers and and bloggers, the sort of the beating heart of the bookish world in a way.
0: Oh, absolutely. I mean, when I got the news, uh, which was slightly before it was announced, I wept i really, <laughs> oh. it was just, um, you know, for so much of the time you, you sit alone, um, in a world of your own creating books and stuff like that. And, oh. um, it was just so amazing. <laughs> I mean, I'm at a loss for words now. It was just, it was validation, which I think as writers so much, we, we struggle for, I mean, every time I get an email from a reader. Um, that is validation, obviously. But this was just very public and um, very appreciated.
1: Yeah, it's amazing that The River Between Us, uh, the, the the winning novel, your latest novel, um, it's amazing that you're still at that sort of point. Because I speak to a lot of people who are debut authors, and it's they have that sort of imposter syndrome, that sort of, I can't believe this is happening. But The River Between Us, is that your ninth book?
0: Um, If you count the novella, yes. (laughs) Um, So it's my eighth full novel.
1: Right. And you still get that imposter syndrome? All the time. Yeah.
0: Um, I have it on my desk, I have my books stacked up in front of me, along with some of the foreign editions. And uh-huh. it's to remind me that actually I am a writer. I am a novelist and I can do this. Um, because with each book, you're a beginning writer because you haven't written this story before. And you do need that reminder
1: that's a beautiful way of looking at it um i've no, i'd not thought of it in the way that every every story you write you are beginning uh, is sort of a beginner at that story
0: yeah um, because uh, you know i'm not a planner so um <laughs> uh, i i know my ending roughly and um so each story is a new one, and for each story, I am a beginner because everyone has been different. I mean, I've learned skills from each and every one that I obviously um, carry forward, I hope, um, but I, um, I try something new. I keep pushing myself as a writer to become better, um, better at storytelling, not necessarily at one particular aspect of the writing. So each time I'm on a new journey.
1: Okay. That's interesting. Is is there anything like specific you do book to book as in, as in like you're sort of, you sort of find something new, maybe a character arc or a certain sort of emotion that you want to delve into and you say, for this book, I'm going to research this and I'm going to really focus on this thing.
0: Not necessarily. Um, I'm a real writing craft book junkie. Okay. <laughs> um, so um, and I have been from the very start of my career and I think you tend to find the craft book that you need at the right time. Um, I remember people recommending to me um, Stephen King's on writing. And I bought it and picked it up, didn't engage, bought it, picked it up, didn't engage, bought it, picked it up, didn't engage. Finally, I sat down and I read it and so much of it really resonated with me and I took away so much from it. Don't ask me what it is now because Mm. we're now talking a few years ago. Aside from the fact, the thing that really made me laugh is he talks about having no distractions in your room, you know, going into your room and not coming out until you've written. And I thought the man has a wife. (laughs) <laughs> you know, he, he he doesn't have to do the laundry, prepare food, run a family and everything else. Um, and I think you'll find um, that if you um, aren't Stephen King, the world does intrude <laughs> in yes. a big way. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you have to learn to write around it. So of late, the, the writing books that have really resonated with me are um, Emotional Fiction by Donald Mass., And I always tap into his books, all of them. They're brilliant. Um, And um, Story Genius by Lisa Cron, And um, she makes it sound simple. And she talks about planning a bit more. I still can't do the way that she suggests writing. Which is much more planning, but I find she's really good for revision. And I also have it on audiobook. So sometimes when I'm out for my many plot walks, I'll have <laughs> that on for half the walk because she's asking questions that makes me think deeper into my story, oh, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Um, and um, the same, uh, Donald Mass is also on audiobook, and I will listen to him. Um, as I walk around and it makes me ask questions to go further into the story and to a deeper level because my first drafts are um, the surface I get the story down and it's only in subsequent drafts I'm not one of these clean writers that I build the layers and I go deeper. Um, And uh, my husband's recently retired and I'm now using him a little bit as a test beta reader. And it was funny. um, He came to me and he said, you know, all really good the surface, but I don't know what she's thinking. And I'm thinking, ah, you know, I've forgotten that. Um, Because I was so focused on getting all the key points in that particular chapter, which was a juicy one. So um, I find these are all kind of tricks of the trade to help me Um, and plot walking, whether I have a headphone plugged in and I'm thinking or sometimes just letting anything surface. And yeah. I'm forever, you know, letting those thoughts come to me and I'll stop in the middle of a, a lane or a footpath or whatever and whip out the phone and quickly writing down notes um, that I've got to go back in and do this.
1: <laughs> uh, yeah, no, that's that's really interesting. And I often do a, a plot walk as well, or if I'm just stuck on it, I'll just go for a wander, to get some fresh air, clear my head and just let sort of the, the ideas sort of swirl and stew on their own, I guess.
0: Well, I... I I kind of think that things bump around. (laughs) It's a funny (laughs) thing to say, but you know, and when they get shuffled, sometimes they fall into the right place.
1: Yes. Yeah. Like, like when you go and watch someone else playing Scrabble and you can see all the letters and as soon as you're sitting down playing Scrabble, you can't make a single word. Exactly. (laughs) Oh yeah. And that's, it's also really interesting because when you look at, different craft there's so many different craft books and uh lectures and, and series and things like masterclass things like that online mm. and i've watched a few of the masterclasses i've watched all of um brandon sanderson's lectures on youtube and the thing that you that i think it's very important and a lot of them do say like there is no one way of writing and like you could and, and i'm sure that as you mentioned you kind of like some things from some books and some things from other books. And it's like, it's all about taking the bits that work for you, I think, and then sort of applying those.
0: Yeah. And, um, I have found, um, that my needs have changed. Yeah. And what I need to pull from, um, a book is different now. Um, it's just one of those things. It was, um, back when I was trying to get published, a agent who is now a writer, Lucy Whitehouse, um, was very kind to me. And although she rejected me, we met for coffee. And she said, You know, this is the book that you need to to read, which was Solstein's Solutions for Writers, I think. It's one of the Solstein books. And I read it and it just blew my mind, and particularly on the aspect of showing, not telling, because um. that didn't really make sense to me. Um, yeah. And I read that and I really absorbed it. And recently, um, I downloaded his book on audio it must have been on buy two you know you know buy one get one free and listening to it again and pulling out vastly different things than the first time that i would (laughs) read and underlined and so forth so I think there's a lot to be said for revisiting Mm -hmm. And just how you change as a writer. And I work with um, two other writers very closely, um, Deborah Harkness and Bridget Cody. And the three of us, one, write very different things. um, Two, write in very different manners. And it's really helpful to see that there's no one way.
1: Yeah. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And even just, I mean, if I I imagine if I took all the authors that I've had on this, Podcast of which Lucy Whitehouse was one. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> if I took all of them and then sort of just went down the planner or or sort of panzer uh, approach, it would be almost a 50 50 split, I think. Or I think it would probably be in the panzer favor. But the point is, like, even when it comes down to something as fundamentally simple as that, it's like, you know, there are way more nuanced things that we all do differently and approach differently. But Yeah, it's such a unique and personal um, craft, I think.
0: It is, and uh, it's not carved in stone. I think every no. book demands something different of us, every story that we decide to tell. Yeah. I mean, there have been times where I've had to do post-its on a wall, and I'm not a post-it person. I like the concept of doing, you know, different color post-its and you can move them. It just doesn't work for me. One, because I have cats and they like post-its. <laughs> and so key plot points walk away. But, um, you know, I have to work in a notebook Uh Um, for that sort of thing. And it's only after the first draft's done that I can begin to colour block. I'm very visual. So, you know, different plot points are different colours along with different characters. Um, And if I lost my notebook, I'd be in terrible shape, but at least um, it can't walk away with a cat.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yes, indeed. It sounds like you, you, you're sort of very aware of how you as a writer have sort of grown and kind of built up more skills through the years. Was writing, if we go way back, was writing always something that you knew you wanted to do?
0: Um, Yes. Um, In the sense that I was an only child Uh and um, my father's father lived with us and um, he was from Ireland and loved to tell stories and loved to tell, uh, loved poetry in particular and used to recite it he knew it by heart. And, um, so visually there were lots of images that must have stayed with me. Um, and I loved books and I loved stories. And in my head, I would continue the stories that had been read to me. And eventually that turned into me writing that, or, you know, early fan fiction, if you will. And then eventually wanting to tell my own stories, uh, which I wanted to, I mean, even in I'm originally from the States. So even in my high school um, note um, yearbook, it mentions stories. And then I did my degree in English literature, despite the fact that I'm a dyslexic. And my senior thesis was three quarters of a novel. So... Um, It's always been there. And then my first job on leaving university was to research, compile and write and edit a history of a small island off of Massachusetts. That experience um, slightly put me off writing because I was writing for a committee and I swore I'd never do that again. Uh. Um, because you couldn't satisfy all the different things i mean to a certain extent i write for a committee now because there's so many people that have input in when you're being published yeah. um and it's a very collaborative thing uh but at the but ultimately i can put my foot down and not change something if I truly believe that it's integral to the story that I want to tell. at that point, I couldn't. so I then went off, got qualifications, um, lived my life, moved from Boston to London, met the man who's now my husband traveled the world, um, had three kids, ran an international um, volunteer organization, and suddenly, in two thousand and four, I um, had sent out the Christmas letter, and my godmother. Uh, may she rest in peace, she just passed this past year. Uh, She said to me, when are you going to get back to fiction? And that year at New Year, I made the promise, you know, we were doing resolutions. I said, I'm going to write more. I didn't say anybody that that it was fiction. And um, we were living in Dubai at that point. And I decided I'd write a Mills and Boone. It was 50,000 words, and I went out and I bought um, all the ones I could find, did my research, wrote the novel. We moved back that year. We transferred from Dubai back to the UK, got a friend to proofread it because, as I say, I'm dyslexic, and I got a computer rejection. Um, My one and only computer rejection, I hasten to add, because, um, and it was very much right. There's no question about it. I have that in hard copy. I am afraid to even look at it. But I found the Romantic Novelist Association because of it. And I joined the New Writer Scheme. And I don't know who my first reader was, but um, I blessed them every day because they said, you can write, but you need to look where your voice fits. And that was in 2005. And I proceeded to write a new book every year for the New Writer Scheme, slowly, evolving and i'd go back and i'd rewrite i didn't write rewrite the first one that was rejected i hasten to add but rewrite (laughs) and and learn um from those things so that when i um got my first agent in um 2011 that was actually with my third book but i was working on my seventh
1: oh okay Right. I see. So were you submitting one at a time, presumably you were submitting them to sort of specific groups of agents?
0: It's interesting. I, um, because of the RNA, I had that lull period where I really wasn't quite sure where my writing was going. Yeah. Um, And I was finding my voice. And I'll come back to voice, remind me to come back to voice. It took me quite a while to do that. So I'd be going to RNA events and you'd meet editors and agents all the time. I had nothing to sell. So I um, became very interested in them and their lives. I'm a curious person, I'm a writer after all. And so by the time I actually had something, I had people who were more than willing to look at it. So at that point, I never sat in the slush pile. Oh, and i okay. also I also learned um about positive rejections uh, uh-huh. the uh, book that was eventually my first published book, The Cornish House, was read in full by a couple of editors, direct without an agent, and they came back and said to me, "This isn't quite right we'd like to see your next work and so I went on to do it, but it took me a real great amount of time to find my voice and i was at the york festival of writing um the first one that they had when i suddenly realized that what i was trying to do was daphne de moyer meets Jodie jody Picoult or Cornwall with issues <laughs> and um in the end i found my own place but i suddenly could phrase that which i couldn't before because i thought because i'm a really happy sort of person um that i would write very happy sort of books but in the end what came it came down to is i wanted to tell a bigger deeper story i mean one of the biggest problems with that first mills and boone that i wrote is the two most interesting characters were the two small boys in the book now Hmm. (laughs) That doesn't really fit, does it? So um, I needed to find a way. um, I needed to find my voice. And I think voice is one of the trickiest things. Um, One of my um, writing buddies, Bridget Cody, um, her voice was so strong from anything that she writes. But she struggles with the whole plot aspect. I don't struggle with plot, but I did struggle with voice. And we were at a concert together um, at the Royal Albert Hall, um, an Elfie Bow concert that I I had been given. And he has the most amazing voice. Yeah. Okay. You know, when he sings Bring Him Home from um, Les Mis, (laughs) Mis, I'm in buckets. But (laughs) that night he also sang Sweet Child of Mine. Oh. And it Didn't work, sorry, Alfie. Um, But uh, you know, uh, his voice wasn't right for the song. Yeah, yeah. and um, I'll give you uh, if he sang, he sang a couple of country songs, and it was fine because there was a big story he was telling, and country music tends to allow you to tell a very big story, just like musicals or opera or so forth. And the best example of two different. styles is um the sound of silence by um garfunkel simon or, uh,
1: garfunkel, simon garfunkel. Yeah. <laughs>
0: but there's a cover of it done by disturbed yes yeah, yeah I, I almost think it's better than the original um <laughs> uh, and but that's two different voices singing the same words so sometimes and it's telling almost a different story so I think as a writer, you have to find out whether you're Simon and Garfunkel or disturbed and mm. whether the words that you're saying are actually your voice. So I I would hasten to say that the wonderful Alfie Bow, whom I adore, really <laughs> should steer clear of Guns N Roses, um, <laughs> and um, Roses
1: right.
0: and stick with bigger stories because he's got a bigger voice. Yeah. Does that yeah. make sense?
1: Yeah, no, 100%. I, I, I saw him doing the um, anniversary Les Mis concert, but that was oh. all Les Mis, so, so there was no yes. issue of him singing Guns N' Roses. <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, but yeah. you know, it's just one of the things. I mean, he's passionate about music and he sang lots yeah. of things and it was a wonderful concert, but that just kind of didn't hit the right mark. So yeah. I think as a writer, you need to find the stories that fit your voice and I'm not saying that your voice can't change as mine clearly did or never was light as I thought it was I mean my mm. husband thinks I have to drag people through hell before I give them a happy hopeful ending um but <laughs> well, that's, that's you know,
1: storytelling isn't it
0: <laughs> yeah to a certain extent
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah but that's a, that's a really good that's a really nice analogy I've never heard it put that way before and I do know I know both of those songs so I, I know I know exactly what you're talking about um it, it also comes to mind is uh, there's a song called Hurt by Nine Inch Nails, which Johnny Cash later covered um, a few oh. years before he died. And the, the contrast there is the same kind of thing where it's the same words, same song, but the, the, the voice with which they both sing it is so different. And they're clearly singing about different things. But great analogy. I really like that. Um, Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets
0: or Mc Crispy Sandwich.
1: And you're you're signed over at LBA, is that right? Yes. And that was eventually through people that you'd met through the industry from being sort of involved with RNA and things like that, was it?
0: Um, Well, my first agent was Carol Blake at Blake Friedman.
1: Oh, okay. Um,
0: Yes. And um, I met her through the RNA and doing the social media um, for the RNA. I used to run, I put them on Twitter. And we were up at Penryn, and it was the night before the conference. And a group of us went out en masse to the local pub, which was called the um, oh, something. Oh, it was the boot and shoe. And I okay. tweeted a picture of it. And Carol came back and said, if it was the book and shoe, it would be the perfect um, <laughs> RNA pub. And yeah. um, that was the beginning of a beautiful friendship. And so going back to that York, um, conference, I actually pitched to her assistant, Ollie Munson, who was there, who's now at a different agency. I can't remember where Ollie is, but, um, anyways, he looked at me and he said, why haven't you pitched to Carol? And I thought, I'm scared to death. (laughs) Um, you know, she wrote the Bible, you know, from pitch to publication and everything else. But I realized after that, that uh, he said, well, she reads your blog posts, you know, she does all of this stuff. Um, so I emailed her the next day and I said, Carol, I'm not ready um, to submit yet. And that's when I gave her the DeMoyer um, cult thing. And she said, if you come anywhere near that, I want to hear. So um, that was April. It was in February. I sent off a fully revised um, Cornish house and um, to four agents, all of whom I knew. Um, several of whom had seen my, two of which had seen my work before. By lunchtime, I was in Dubai when I sent it. By lunchtime, I had my first request for a full. And it was really funny because I emailed Carol. I said, dear Carol, as your friend and not as a potential client, your book doesn't tell me what to do in this circumstance. And she came back and said... Right um as your friend <laughs> you notify all the other agents of that case and um by Saturday um I had had uh, three offers and wow. I I chose Carol. Uh one withdrew because she didn't want to get into competition. So um that was really lovely. So I actually signed with her officially on Valentine's Day that year and I had my first offer um from the Netherlands on St. Patrick's Day and um it, it, it went from there. And then, of course, I lost Carol. And I joined Luigi and um, Alison Bonomi are now my uh, agents. Luigi's my agent. And um, I knew him from the Dubai Lit Fest. So, okay. again, you know, the more a writer can network, um, yeah. the better.
1: Yeah, this is this is something I've heard many times from agents, especially where it, whether it's you want to get your work sort of published you want to get more involved uh in the industry or you actually want to work in the industry it's just get involved you know just throw yourself into it meet as many people as you can speak to as many people as you can you know it's such publishing is such a s- supportive industry and so many people out there are willing to lift you up and help you and the rna is just one example of the many great organizations um that all that do that
0: Absolutely. And uh, the side of caution is, remember, it is a very small community.
1: Yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so uh, it, it works both ways.
1: <laughs> yes. Yeah. yeah. If you make enemies, uh, a lot of people will hear about it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Just be nice, everyone. Absolutely. <laughs> and um, going back to you, dubbed by The Guardian as the queen of the contemporary Cornish novel, what is it about Cornwall uh, that has inspired so much of your work?
0: As you said that, I'm standing in my study. I immediately turned to the view out my study window. <laughs> um, I didn't know when I first came to Cornwall that it would become my muse. Um, going back to that first book I wrote, it was not set in Cornwall. Every book since then has been set there. I am going to uh-huh. sound totally insane when I say I see <laughs> stories in the landscape. Um, it, it just, the landscape inspires me. I've dug yeah. into the history. Um, there's just so much. I, it is my muse.
1: Yeah. No, I, I get that. I was in Ecuador last year and just moving around Ecuador, which is such a, uh, mountainous area and it, like every, all the cities are sort of very high altitude and you go up and down and around all these mountains. And just looking at it, I was sort of There was something, I don't want to say that the mountains necessarily inspired a story, but they inspired sort of scenes and sort of settings and things like that, where I I was thinking, wow, think how amazing some, like, I know what you mean. There's a magic that's conjured up by scenery.
0: There is. I mean, people have often said to me, because I was in Dubai for 11 years, you know, why don't you write about there? And I think of the times that we were out in the desert, particularly in the Desert, which is um, near Abu Dhabi. Mm. And the the vast emptiness filled me. Um, it filled my well, but it didn't inspire stories.
1: Uh-huh.
0: So it's you know I, I'm very affected by landscape. Um, yeah. there's no question about it. It's like, if I see a full moon out my bedroom window, casting light, I live in a very old cottage, casting light through these old windows, I start tingling, you know, <laughs> it's just the way it is.
1: <laughs> yeah. 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 No, that's beautiful. That's, it's such a lovely, uh, lovely thought just to be inspired by nature, I guess, the, mm-hmm. the outdoors and just, um, life, uh, moving on to something a little bit more technical uh i noticed that with your um you i looked through the books that you've done and you have a new book coming out called the impossible shore Mm -hmm. all of your books apart from the river between us and the new one that's coming out have uh cornwall in the title somewhere how come (laughs) and is this just purely a marketing thing but how come cornwall is not in the river between us and the new one
0: Back when I was a debut novelist with the Cornish House, uh, it was decided that Cornwall would be my brand. Yeah. And in order to build me and my brand, we went the Cornish House, the Cornish Affair, the Cornish Stranger, under a Cornish sky. Um, then we we broke tradition and we wrote the I wrote the Returning Tide. And that was to the the sales team and come back and said, oh, OK, all the titles are starting to sound a little too similar. It's time to break from that and and give a bigger audience. OK, um, uh, that was at the point that our, my editor moved. And um, the next book was supposed to be called uh, Varying Things. But six weeks before delivery, um, they changed the title to One Cornish Summer. I had no summer in that book. Um, so I had six weeks to find a summer because the book is set from September to January. <laughs> and <laughs> yes, um, it's a book I'm very proud of, but it you know, it was an orphan book because at that point, I knew I was going to follow my editor um, to HQ at that point. And she wanted to grow me bigger. So then I did The Path to the Sea, The River Between Us, and now coming up The Impossible Shore. So that, um, I, people know me as, uh, the queen of, um, Cornish contemporary novel type of thing. And they, they understand that my stories are set there. Um, I now have a base, so it's not as essential to put Cornwall in the title.
1: Ah, gotcha. Cause the people that want that already know. And then now with these sort of more open titles, it's more broad and. Yes. That's yeah. No, that's interesting. It's nice to know. Um, before we get to the final question, uh, what, as someone who, uh, I think I'm, I'm right in saying that you, you whilst you have uh, eight books in a novella, almost nine books out, you, it sounds like you consider yourself still a student of the craft of writing and, and like, we're all constantly getting better. What, um, What sort of tricks have you learned along the way that you think aspiring writers could really tap into to help them out?
0: I think the most important thing, um, as I mentioned before, I'm dyslexic, but I think it applies to any writer. I have my computer read the book back to me. Oh. Um, and um, for me, my ears are better at, than my eyes at seeing mm. things. But I think if a computer is reading it to you, they can't put the, unlike a narrator, they can't put emotion into it. So yeah. if a sentence is flat, if a transition isn't there, Um, all those things, you know, just jump out like crazy. And I think it, it, it also gives you distance to think of the book as less internal and not yours. So you can be harder with it when editing. It's, it's. And, and particularly if you're in a publishing cycle, you haven't got a lot of time. I mean, the ideal situation is to write a draft, put it away for a couple of months, come back to it, put it away for a couple of months, you know. But when you're in a a, a publishing cycle that, you know, you're lucky if you get a weekend sometimes turnaround. But if you um, listen to it, which takes time, um, it's not like 10 hours listening to an audiobook because if something doesn't work you know you suddenly brought up short you can be listening to a paragraph upwards of 10-15 times in order to get that flow in it also helps that you're not embarrassed when the audiobook comes out because you've heard (laughs) it
1: (laughs) yeah and hopefully the audiobook will be Will be uh, more exciting because it'll be a real person putting real emotions into the, into
0: the yes, and there you know there's the variation that comes into it and everything else, yeah. but I mean a, a clunky sentence read by Microsoft Sam, let me tell you
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah no that's that's a really interesting trick because I've heard and you know it's a very common um, thing where people will read their uh writing out or have someone else read it to them to to listen to how it sounds when it's read out because it does feel different but yeah i'd not Considered that obviously anyone narrating will, they'll sort of fix in post, as it were. They'll make tweaks, mm-hmm. they'll add punctuation where it wasn't necessarily there before to make the mm-hmm. sentence flow better. Yeah, no, that's, that's, Microsoft Sam doesn't do that. Gives you the hard truth. Uh,
0: yeah. I mean, you can pick better voices than him, but sometimes <laughs> you need something as bad as that.
1: Yeah. No, that's a really, that's really helpful. I'm going to try that. I'm definitely going to try that.
0: And it doesn't sound like your work. So it's easy to think, oh, that doesn't work. That's
1: Uh. terrible.
0: And go in and fix it. Whereas (laughs) sometimes it's very hard to kill your darlings.
1: Yes. Yes, indeed. Yes, it is. Amazing. Well, that brings us on to the final question, which as always is, if Liz, you were stranded on a desert island with a single book, which book would you take?
0: Mm. It would have to be Pride and Prejudice. And yeah, (laughs) I thought about this a little bit because um, I obviously read it in my English lit degree and studied it then. Um, I've read it since. And each time I read it, I find something different. And I pretty much forced my middle son to read it. And it was really fun discussing with him because he approached it from a completely different manner and had seen the humour in it, which probably had passed me by in all other readings. So I think it's a book that I could happily reread and take something different from it each time.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's it's one of those um, all-time classics, isn't it? I think it's a story that almost everyone knows or everyone has seen an interpretation of.
0: The scene and interpretation of, I think, you know, looking at it now as a writer, I think, oh, my God, she's broken every single rule, (laughs) you know, know, all those things. And I think of when the first time I read it, of course, I was looking, you know, as a teenager, I was looking at the love story aspect of it. But there's the social commentary. There's so much that's going on to take a look at.
1: Yeah. 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 And she really kicked off the enemies to lovers trope as well.
0: Absolutely.
1: <laughs> which we all love. So <laughs> amazing. A great choice. I, I think Jane Austen is a, is a very, um, popular choice for the, for the desert Island. I think everyone loves a bit of Jane Austen. Um, I think
0: so. Now, if I could take a complete works, I'd really be satisfied, but if I can only have one <laughs> for me, it's Pride and Prejudice.
1: Okay. Pride and Prejudice, the one, um, well, thank you so much, Liz, for coming on the show and, and chatting with me and sharing your sort of uh, your journey and your experience in, in publishing with me and everyone listening.
0: Oh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you.
1: And uh, to keep up with everything that Liz is doing, you can follow her on Twitter and Instagram at Liz underscore Fennec, on TikTok at Liz Fennick author. Or on Facebook, also, Liz Fennec author, or hit the website, um, www.lizfenick.com. Fennec is spelt F E N W I C K. And her new book will be out in October, The Impossible Shore. So look out for that one. To make sure you don't miss an episode of this podcast, follow us on Twitter at Right and Wrong UK or on Instagram at Right and Wrong Podcast. Thanks again to Liz for joining us, and thanks to everyone listening. We'll catch you in the next episode.